Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, UK rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale and Jan Navruzzi. All right, so yields are rising again, led again by the UK, maybe unsurprisingly at this point. Uh, as the Bank of England bought nothing in its operations, curves continue to steepen. So are you, are you surprised by this outcome? Um, I'm not surprised by the market reaction that we're seeing, um, you know, given that the Bank of England aren't buying very much or or much at all. Um, And I'm also not surprised by the fact that they're not buying very much. I think this tool was always designed to be a kind of backstop program. It was really, you know, in, in their own words, it was a time-limited temporary operation that was essentially a circuit breaker in in the gilt market to try and help markets uh, well really calm the volatility that we saw last week and and help markets to regain some composure and and it really has done exactly that you know we saw a monster rally on the day when it was announced um, and that kind of followed through for for the next couple of days as well and although we are trending now back towards higher yields and steeper curves as you say that's happening in a more, much more orderly fashion than, than we saw last week. And, you know, I think I made this point on the podcast last week as well, but for the Bank of England, it was never really about the level of yields or, or the fall in price that, that we got to in gilts. It was much more about the speed at which we were reaching that higher level. You know, it's it has been our view, and I think the Bank of England shared the view as well, that the level that we got to was not particularly divorced from fundamentals when you consider, you know, the new supply outlook given the the mini budget that was announced a couple of weeks ago, what the mini budget implies for, um, you know, growth and inflation expectations, and therefore what that also implies for, for bank rate. I think it was right that we saw yields rise quite considerably, actually, um, but just not perhaps with, with the volatility and, and the speed at that, which that was happening, at, at, particularly at the long end of the curve and obviously you know now it's been well telegraphed that the problems that that was creating for certain sectors of of the market um so uh, you know i think as is probably really always the case with with these kind of programs you know it's a similar story i guess to to the ecb's tpi these backstops are often much more you know the signaling effect is often much more important than than the flows effect itself and actually i think the bank of england will probably be relatively content with the outcome that they have achieved yields have fallen quite considerably from where they are where they were volatility has come off significantly in the gilt market and actually the cost to them has been very little they've done uh seven auctions so far if i'm counting correctly and and they've really bought you know less than four billion in in terms of long-end purchases and and nearly all of that was concentrated in the first three auctions they did two in a row this week with nothing where they bought nothing and then they've done a final one um not a final one, sorry, they've done one more today um, as we're recording this where they bought very little. Um, and I think that the clarification or the communication from them has has been clear that that they will not be bidding up for these bonds. They will not be buying bonds unnecessarily. They understand that the more they buy now, the harder it's going to be for them to sell these bonds back to the market ultimately. And so, you know, they, they want to be buying as little as possible, I would say. Uh, and so at this point, there's about one week left in the program. What do you think happens after they terminated on October 14th, the scheduled end date of those of these temporary purchases? Yeah, I think I'm actually a bit more relaxed 
perhaps about what happens on the 14th of October than, than other people that I speak to. You know, given that the Bank of England are buying so little right now, um, I'm not sure we get this real cliff edge effect that, that people are worried about. I think I would be more nervous if they were buying, you know, five billion a day. If, if they bought five billion a day for in total the 13 days that they were buying bonds, and that means they bought 65 billion over this period. And, and then suddenly we're going back to zero on Monday, the 17th of October. I would be a bit more worried about the kind of volatility and, and uh, market moves that that would induce. But actually, given that they're buying so little, I'm not overly concerned that we'll come in on, on Monday, the 17th, and the open will be particularly chaotic. Um, I think there's a different question around, you know, what this means for pension schemes and whether two and a half weeks is long enough for them to, to rebalance their portfolios, improve their um, hedge ratios and, and sell down the assets that they need to sell down. But from a, from a market functioning perspective, I actually think that given the Bank of England are buying such small amounts, and that in and of itself has generated some curve steepening and, and higher yield pressures. I think that what we're going to see over the next week or so is just a, a more measured path towards higher yields, as I was saying before. And therefore, you know, we might end up at the same kind of end point, if you like, on Monday, the 17th of October. But actually, this way, it's happening over at least kind of seven days, if if not a couple more. Whereas on if they'd have been buying five billion a day up until Friday the fourteenth, we might have just had all of that move and all of that curve steepening uh, on the Monday morning, which again would kind of perhaps put us back to square one in some ways in in the, the problems that it might cause for the financial industry. And finally, you you briefly mentioned the mini budget, but uh, the other news this week was that the government sort of made like a U-turn on the top rate of income tax policy. Uh, how important is that generally from signaling budget perspective? Yeah, well, markets took it very positively. I think from, from a signaling perspective, they, they appreciated the U-turn, let's say. You know, we saw a strong rally early on in this week, and most of that was driven by this, this U-turn, I think. From a, from a kind of flows perspective, it's sort of irrelevant. The top rate of tax, um, abolishing that top rate of tax was estimated to cost just over 2 billion. So, you know, as a proportion of the additional borrowing that the government announced with the mini budget, 2 billion out of that 70 billion is, is really small um, and doesn't change the kind of net supply picture whatsoever, which was what was really the trigger for the sell-off that, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So I don't think it changes the the kind of bearish view at all or the medium term outlook for gilts that, that we've held for a long time it, you know from a, a fiscal perspective it's it is really irrelevant probably enough on the uk then because there has been other things going on this week <laughs> although it doesn't feel like it in my little world but perhaps we can focus on the us now jan because you know, a big driver of, of the rally in the early part of this week that we saw, aside from the UK government reversing on, on one of their tax policies, was this, you know, renewed discussion around a central bank pivot, I guess, you know, triggered by the RBA hiking less than expected. How does this, you know, how is this relevant for the Fed? Is is the Fed pivot on or, or was were markets kind of getting ahead of themselves in the pricing of that theme? Yeah, I think markets did get ahead of, of themselves a little bit, in, in at least in rhetoric form. Uh, the pricing 
came back, it has stabilized, it hasn't entirely, like markets are not, because we had this Fed pivoting thing earlier in the summer, uh, that didn't materialize. And I guess the main difference with the US uh, compared to the rest, most of the other central banks is US still shows very strong aggregate demand domestically. Uh, and a lot of the inflation is still driven domestically as opposed to imported shocks such as energy that we're seeing in, for example, in Europe. So, so the nature of inflation is different data is still fairly robust in the US. We haven't fallen off a cliff by any means. So uh, the Fed is certainly not pivoting yet. Uh, with each rate hike, of course, we're going to get closer to the, the peak of both signaling and what's what's left to be delivered. But uh, the pivot is, I think it's, again, an overdone topic. And even from the Fed speakers, we hear similar, uh, similar ideas as well. But uh, generally, I don't think we should draw too many messages from what rest of central banks are doing the Fed while they uh, does communicate with uh, central banks globally. It doesn't really draw a path from uh, what, what the rest of the world is doing. It tends to be technically in the other way around, uh, given the size, the relative size of the U.S. economy compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and I guess one final thing I would say a little bit from the Bank of England experience, I think you're absolutely right that it really depends on the speed of the change rather than the level of rates uh, and the instability that that volatility can cause into the system. U.S. rates have been moving a decent amount, but nothing uh, like what we saw in the U.K. Uh, however, if if the whole BOE intervention added one thing on, on the Fed's risk dashboard, I would say is that there's a lot of systemic risks that could be building up in the background that are still not accounted for. And maybe the next time we get an acceleration in inflation or you know, a lack of deceleration in inflation, the Fed is not going to come out and say, listen, now we have to do 1% uh, in hikes. Uh, maybe they just maintain or kind of peak around these, uh, these levels of signaling as opposed to pivot, which I think is a subtle but an important difference. You mentioned Fed speakers there and, and kind of what they're saying. I mean, they've been pretty... Um, unanimous in their view that, you know, the Fed will be on hold in, in 2023 after hiking Fed funds to around four and a half percent. How does that fit with your view? Uh, so we actually have rates going a little bit higher compared to what the latest thought plot showed. We see the, uh, the, the cycle ending at 4.75, 5% as the Fed funds range uh, after peaking in at the end of the first half of next year. The Fed is just below that, uh, near 4.6%. That's the median forecast. And if you listen to the Fed speakers that have been coming out, they, they pretty much repeat that message. We're going to get to about 4.5%. And once we get to that uh, pretty restrictive level, we're going to stay there for a while. I think this type of messaging works for now because, like I mentioned, data is still not that bad. But once you start seeing unemployment numbers going up once you start seeing things like uh, services sectors showing a, a slowdown, which are still uh, fairly strong. And once you kind of start seeing a little bit more political pressure, it's going to be harder and harder to persuade markets that you know, there's two million, for example, there's two more million unemployed people and you're still going to maintain rates to the, into a very restrictive area. What they might do, might, might do might be entirely different than what the market will price in. And I suppose since most people care about what the markets will price in until the end of the year, if our forecasts of a recession that begins at the end of this year actually do come in, uh, do happen, then I think 
that curve will continue to invert and the Fed, people will price in more uh, Fed cuts into next year. It's going to be very, very hard to keep pushing that story that the Fed will be able to hold after they get to a very restrictive territory into next year. So I think while in reality might end up being a little bit different and they just might end up staying at restricted levels, the markets will have a, have a difficult time pricing that in as soon as uh, weakness in data starts showing up. This week was not one of those, you know, ADP numbers just came out. They were pretty uh, just above expectations with higher revisions last month. ISM services index, same story, shows that the services sector is still growing in absolute terms. So uh, we'll see with the NFPs. I don't know the numbers yet uh, for tomorrow uh, since we're recording this on Thursday, but so far uh, US still remains on a, on a not bad of a path, I would say. This whole uh, theme of an imminent downturn is, has yet to materialize and the Fed gets away with uh, saying no cuts next year. What about further out the curve then? Have you, you know, given everything that you've just said there, have you changed your view on, on the direction of travel of, of treasuries? Like you say, it's been, you know, a volatile week with, with the UK leading the way, but, you know, it's kind of swept other global fixed income with it and, and treasuries have moved a fair amount as well. Yeah, uh, with the risk of giving the most boring possible that uh, most boring answer that exists out there, the Treasury nominal curve looks more or less uh, about where we have them as marked as fair value right now. Uh, the, the front end price is what the Fed tells you, and that's not going to change anymore. We're not going to get an explicit guidance by the Fed, a promise, so to say. Uh, they're just going to be nudging us into directions. And if they say terminal is going to be 4.6, probably market stays there. The two-year point starts pricing some cuts afterwards, but uh, just over 4% is sounds about the right number for us for now. That further out the curve, tens are around 3.75. We could see them gradually going lower from here, but nothing to a, to a large extent as the Fed maintains this uh, hawkish, uh, hawkish stance. That being said, one thing that we disagree with is the composition of the 10-year, how it's broken down between inflation expectations and real rate expectations. Uh, we think the real rate component is a little bit too high at 1.6% uh, on the 10-year, and inflation expectations should price in a little bit more of a premium given the uncertainty in this post-COVID world, perhaps some lingering structural inflation. This, and this is both in the front end and in the, in the long end. Uh, and if we assume that the Fed's terminal, uh, sorry, long-run rate estimate of 2.5% is correct, 2% uh, of that is inflation, half a percentage point of that is, uh, is real rates. And if, on the other hand, the Fed does drive the economy into a recession and in turn access productivity and access kind of like trend growth, that just makes 1.6% in real rates look a little, uh, a little too, too high. So the disagreement is mainly in the composition, but as far as yield levels go in nominal terms, uh, pretty much the entire curve looks about right. So uh, sorry to disappoint listeners in this really <laughs> boring Okay, so let's switch over to somewhere where we think yields should actually be in, in quite different levels to where they are. Giles, you kind of teased us a little bit last week by saying that you were going to up, be updating your Bund forecast. Obviously, you know, I think we acknowledged last week that it hit your longstanding 2% target. Um, and you have now updated that. Obviously, you know, like I said, with the uh, reversal of the UK's um, tax policy and then um, with this kind of central bank pivot theme at the beginning of the week we saw quite a big rally in fixed income but actually now we're, we seem to be back on 
this kind of bear steepening trend. So where to from here for, for European fixed income? The, the arguments are all basically the same ones that they have been all year. Um, you know, I think, you know, I mean, obviously the growth discourse has kind of come and gone a little bit. And, you know, we are so far down the line for central bank moves and, and, and so on and so forth. But but basically the, the fundamental kind of stack up as, you now what have you got? You've got a lot more bond supply. You've got larger for longer fiscal deficits. You've got the potential for quantitative tightening coming in maybe beginning of next year or something like that. I'm sure that's something that we'll come back to quite a lot in future podcasts. Um, we've got interest rates at the front end being moved quite dramatically higher everywhere, of course, uh, but also in Europe. And no, that just erodes carry. And that's, no, I mean, there, there, there is actually still some carry in the European curve, but that's going to go pretty quickly. And then... Yeah, I won't rehash the whole discussion that we've just had with uh, with Jan in the US context. But you now, if we're going to end up with kind of higher for longer in in, in rates as well, then I think that the, you know, the, the those that think that long duration is a great way to have the right kind of leverage to that to that pivot point when rates start to to fall. And so, you know, why have catch when you can have thirty year bonds that give you twenty times leverage to that move then then great no but if that's a negative carry trade i think that that's going to try people's patience a little bit and then you've got the whole multi-asset kind of risk reward um discussion where you know correlations between stocks and bonds are as close to one as they've ever been really i mean no global bond markets are basically risk and so you know, you don't have this diversification argument really in your favor either. The central bank can you know, put, you know, the Fed put, the ECB put, if such a thing exists, now that is also a long way out of the money. So it all stacks up as a pretty bearish scenario still. And so the only thing that really matters, I guess, is, you know, have, have valuations done enough. And there we, you know, I mean, the, no, the 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 basic kind of answer is well, you know, if you're if you're not sure, then you know, go with the momentum given the stories. But we you know we go back to our Bund model, and you know, that you, know, you put in. I mean, that takes into account not all of the things that I've just mentioned, but a number of them, and that spits out three uh, percent actually uh, at the moment. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think you need to push it quite that far. I, I think that 275 is a reasonable target for sort of Q1 next year. That's uh, what we're leading with. But, you know, you can stress that fair value model in a number of ways. And it seems pretty robust. I mean, 275 in most sort of reasonable alternative scenarios that you could come up with for the main inputs there. Is is actually a lower bound rather than a midpoint or an upper bound. So, it's two seventy five. It is in ten year bonds. Two seventy five. I like it. Uh, so, thinking a little bit more about risk asset, riskier assets, I suppose, in the context of European fixed income. The other sort of news this week. Well, it's been a lot of news this week, but one thing I wanted to pick your brains on was around Italy, and and we had the kind of bi monthly PEP data this week, which showed us that actually Italy or BTPs weren't really very strongly supported at all by um, PEP purchases through August and September. 
is that a surprise to you and and how do you see those spreads evolving over the next couple of weeks or, or months as, as bond yields move quite a lot higher we think it's a little bit of a surprise i think i think it was probably a bit of a surprise to to everyone actually i mean, you know, they've been pretty stable around about the level where maybe people thought that the ecb might start to have some interest and so the fact that they had that stability actually is interesting it's a little bit encouraging to be honest with you to know that uh, it seems that the ecb has not been the only game in town and it's not the only reason why why italy has been able to to, to maintain that stability uh, this week we had a number of negatives. Well, maybe I should just go back and say, over September, of course, you know, maybe the market was just holding its breath a little bit to see what happened with these elections, which then, as we've already been over in previous podcasts, didn't turn out to be particularly scary for, for markets compared to you know, expectations and so on. And they've been kind of tracking in that direction for a while anyway. So... You know, at the moment, I don't think that there's any big changes to that story, but there were a couple of negatives. I mean, obviously, we had the risk off kind of hit from OPEC and some bad European data. Um, we had the, the sell off resume in, in, in rates overall. Um, we had also there were there, there was a, a ratings review from Moody, which didn't take place um, last Friday, but they came came out um, and said, Subsequently, that you know, they wanted to see reform momentum and so on, and if there was backtracking, you know, the normal kinds of things you would expect to hear from a, a rating agency, then there might be some downward pressure on um, on on its leaf rating. Okay, fine. So, you know, that markets didn't love, and you know, I think that there was also some hope, perhaps. Um, I never really thought it was that likely, but some hope that uh, the ECB executive board member Panetta might be, might become the next. Uh, finance minister, which obviously would have given this government uh, a particularly sort of market-friendly establishment face. So they're back in the market for a finance minister, it seems. So, you know, a few, you know, I would describe it as minor negatives, but um, I don't think the view overall honestly has, has changed. And, you know, uh, we're now at levels in in spread where again you know, i think that the the ecb would probably care if we widened another 10 basis points or so particularly if i'm right and we're heading towards two and a half or or, or significantly higher in, in 10 year bonds then that 250 basis point spread if we're talking about five percent in, in in 10 year italy then people i think will start wanting to talk about debt sustainability fundamentals again in the context but that's not quite yet all right, then. We'll watch out for that. All right, guys, I think that's probably uh, all we've got time for this week. Here's hoping to a little bit of a calmer and quieter week next week, uh, but we will catch up then, of course. Thanks to our listeners for listening in. And just a reminder that if you liked today's episode, don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>